The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to God's Word together this morning, and we're looking back in our series in Hebrews, and I invite you to turn to the end of Hebrews chapter 5 with me this morning. As you're turning there, I think about times, I think we've probably all had an experience like this at some point or another, where in your relationship with someone in your life, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse, they keep dropping hints about something sort of subtle suggestions, uh, and you know they're worried about something or frustrated about something, but you haven't got the whole story yet, and you're not sure exactly why they're upset or what's fully going on. Well, throughout the first five chapters of Hebrews, the author has dropped short comments or, or hints that warn his readers that he's concerned for them. He's concerned specifically that they might turn away from God and and the great salvation they have in Christ. He hinted at it in chapter 3 when he said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He hinted at it again in chapter 4 when he said, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But now we've come to the end of chapter 5 and and the beginning of chapter 6, and the author of Hebrews decides to halt his whole argument and address his concern head on. He's just started, if you remember from last week, he just started what will turn out to be his longest argument of the book, that Jesus is a better high priest who becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. But he's just started this argument and he calls a timeout, stops his argument, and says, I've got a lot to say about Jesus and his salvation, but frankly, I'm not sure that you're ready to hear it. I need to explain to you more fully the danger that you're in so that you will pay attention and profit from the glorious reality of Jesus that I'm about to explain to you. So that's the context here. Would you join me as we read, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, and reading down through verse 12 of chapter 6. About this, that is God designating Jesus as a high priest, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. 
And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have a full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Father, I thank you for this word. There are many things in in this passage that are, are precious, some that are hard to understand, but we pray that you would give us your spirit to encourage us and to draw us near to Jesus this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at these 16 verses this morning from Hebrews, we're hearing the author directly address the hearts of the church. And as he does so, he explains three things to them. He explains the problem that he sees with their hearts. He explains the great danger that this problem can lead to. And then he gives his reason for hope. That despite this danger, his readers will still gain eternal life in Christ. Let's walk through each of these three and and let's start by looking at the problem that the author sees in the church. Chapter 5, verse 11, if you look at it, states the problem very clearly. About this we have much to say, but it is hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. The word dull of hearing, you can probably get a picture in your mind of someone who is dull of hearing. Uh, But the word dull uh, can also be translated as sluggish. In fact, if you look in your passage that we read at the very end, chapter 6, verse 12, you'll see that the author says his whole point is so that his readers may not be sluggish. It's the same word. Same word. So in the very first verse and the very last verse of our passage, the author uses the same word, sluggish to describe the central problem, his central point that he wants to make. Among these Christians is a dullness or sluggishness of hearing that concerns the author. And of course, the main problem here isn't a problem with their ears. He says they're dull of hearing, but it's not as if they need a better hearing aid. It's not like they need to go to Walmart and get one of those earwax removal kits that they sell there. It's not an ear problem. It's a heart problem, a heart problem. Their lazy, sluggish ears describe an attitude of the heart, the habit of one who has stopped listening eagerly, has stopped learning and growing, has stopped actively engaging and exercising discernment over what they do and what they think and what they hear. It's someone who is bored, someone who is spiritually disengaged. 
Maybe you can think, those of you who are students, or if you think back to your student days, you remember the student who would walk into the classroom and and choose the seat in the back of the classroom right in front of the wall because it was easier to fall asleep uh, back there. Or maybe it's the, the student who sort of stares blankly throughout class. Or maybe it's the student who is very busy distracting themselves in class. But they all have one thing in common. They're completely disengaged and disinterested in actually learning and growing. There's a sluggishness, there's a laziness, a dullness to their approach to what they're learning. And this is the problem the author of Hebrews sees in the church he's writing to. Except for the church, the problem isn't a laziness or a sluggishness in math class. It's a laziness or sluggishness in the face of the words of God describing the only hope of life in Jesus Christ. And the result of this sluggishness are evident. You see it described here in this passage. When they should be capable of explaining the truths of God and his salvation to others, that's, he says, you should be teachers, not in sort of an official capacity, but you should be able to explain the gospel to others. But you actually need to be taught all over again the very basic principles of the gospel. And like any hopefully good preacher, the uh, author decides to use a rather vivid analogy to describe what he's saying. He says, you should have grown into adults in your faith, or, or at least adolescents in your faith by now. You should be able to digest solid food, but instead you're still a baby. You still need to be fed milk from a bottle. And you're sort of this analogy, you can sort of imagine the diagnosis you know, well, here we have a 15-year-old. They've been walking and growing, supposedly growing for, you know, in their faith. And this 15-year-old should be able to eat some pizza and burritos and all the things that 15-year-olds like to eat. But based on my examination, it looks like for this 15-year-old, you're going to just have to keep going back to the formula and bottle feeding. Because he is not ready for solid food. He is still a child. He's just not growing. This is the problem that the author says. And the author goes on, and you see this in verse 14. The author tells them what maturity should look like. He tells them where they should be. He said solid food is for the mature. And maturity comes from having their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil, truth and error, right and wrong. The fact that his readers are in danger of walking away from Jesus' salvation and in favor of a a life that does not honor Christ or in favor of doctrine that is not true of Christ shows that they're not engaging with the truth. They're not practicing discernment. They're not thinking clearly. And they're easily led astray by those around them who present a decent-sounding alternative view of God in the world. They are children who need to be taken back to the gospel again and again in its basic truths, rather than going on into greater knowledge, joy, assurance, and hope. And so at the beginning of chapter 6, you see the author give this encouragement. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. That's the call. Leave this sluggishness, leave this childishness, and go on and grow towards maturity. Now you see that there's a number of things that define this basic 
uh, doctrine of Christ, the elementary doctrines of Christ are spelled out for us there in verses 1 and 2. And it's probably worth uh, noting that commentators uh, wrestle and wrangle a bit over exactly what these uh, phrases refer to, what these elementary doctrines of Christ are, especially the phrases instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. What exactly are all of these uh, referring to? But I think there's a fairly good consensus. All of the commentators that I read, all five of them, agree that these six things, this repentance from dead works, the uh, faith toward God, instruction about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, are the basic summary of the gospel and that would have been presented to a new believer. If you look through the, uh, the book of Acts, uh, you see these things summarized over and over when the gospel is presented. And the instruction about washings likely refers to baptism or the teachings about baptism. And, and so if you look at Acts, you'll see that people are re- re- repeatedly encouraged, repent and believe. Be baptized with the laying on of hands. The apostles do that over and over so that you might have resurrection from the dead and escape eternal judgment. And so uh, these are the elementary doctrines of Christ. And the author doesn't want him to, the author doesn't want his readers to abandon these truths. He's not saying leave them behind as if you should forget them. He's saying leave them behind so that you can go on and grow. Kind of like a math teacher would say, we need to get beyond learning our numbers so we can start doing addition and multiplication and eventually, hopefully, algebra and and trigonometry. You don't forget your numbers. You move on from them. You don't forget the gospel. You move on and grow in a deeper understanding uh, of the gospel. And that is what the author is calling for here. And so here's the problem. These believers had a spiritual sluggishness. They are not practicing discernment. So that the author is not confident that they will give attention to his words or be able to understand the truths he wants to explain to them in Christ. And he is worried that they're not able to grow. Uh, in their faith as a result. Now I want to pause for just a minute and ask if we would examine our own hearts. Do you know what spiritual sluggishness looks like? Would we know how to spot spiritual dullness in our hearts and our lives? It shows up in a lack of caring about God's word or spiritual things. It's different from sort of a a weariness or a dryness of soul. Those are things that, as believers, we experience at times. But spiritual laziness is different in that it is just disinterested. Or it believes it's distracted by the things of the world so that it's no longer paying careful attention. It doesn't see the words of God as important. It sees no need to listen eagerly or to exercise discernment. It doesn't think it needs to be invested in growing in spiritual things. One of the authors that my wife and I enjoy reading, R.R. Reno, argues that the church has long identified spiritual laziness as one of the greatest dangers to the church. He reminds us that 4th century monks, I love this, called sloth the noonday devil. And they, they argued that the noonday devil was the thing that had the greatest ability to wreak havoc on their lives of prayer and spiritual growth. Dante was a medieval poet. He talked about sloth as a slowness to love. And I love that phrase. Laziness is our inability to see something as important and worth fighting for. It's our inability to commit ourselves to something, 
to love something, to engage something, to commit our lives to something. It doesn't recognize something as essential, and so it has no reason to pursue it with zeal and passion. This is spiritual laziness. In fact, R. R. Reno argues that today it is likely not pride or a desire to assert myself over and against God that is our greatest spiritual danger, but rather spiritual laziness that avoids taking sides too strongly in moral questions or that avoids committing ourselves too passionately to our faith. It avoids talking about spiritual battles It avoids exercising discernment in everything we do when that might uh, compromise us in our worldly occupations. And so it ends up falling away to a safe and easy distance from the implications of living life under a holy God and his saving king. And so my question is, would you and I be willing to examine our lives for spiritual sluggishness? It's the author of the Hebrews' great concern. And I think it's a great concern for us as well. But this problem begs a question. Why does this really matter? Now granted, we don't want people to be babies in their faith. We would like to see them grow. But is earnest growth really that important? Why does this matter? So we've heard the problem, spiritual laziness, but what's the danger? This is the second thing the author goes on to explain. Look at verse 4. In chapter 6, starting in verse 4 through verse 8, the author explains the danger of spiritual sluggishness. And it is, can be summarized this way. Permanent lack of growth isn't an option. Any living thing will either turn a corner and start growing again, or it will fall away and die. And just, just past month, sort of the spring yard work, I transplanted a small pussy willow tree from my front yard to my backyard. And as I was doing this, I had some pretty poor planning. I didn't really think things through like I should have, uh, like the fact that I had to take out a bush before I transplanted it. So I dug up the tree and then it lay sitting there and its roots dried out a lot more than I had intended them to. And so I plant this tree, but within days, what do you see happening? Leaves start to wilt. They start to turn yellow. Usually in May, this pussy willow explodes in growth. I see no growth. And so what do I do? I water it. I give it every care that I can because I know that one of two things is going to happen. Either its roots will take root, it will grow new roots, and it will start growing again, or it will die. It's not just going to stay in that in-between state forever. And this is the author of Hebrews' concern. As a pastor and as a shepherd of these Christians, he looks at their growth or their lack of it, their dullness of hearing, and he appeals to them in the strongest possible terms. He says, let us move on from here. Give ourselves again to growth, discernment, and maturity, and we will do this if God permits. But if not, if not, spiritual laziness can lead one to falling away from Christ and falling away from our only hope of of salvation. Now, some of you, as we look at verses 4 through 8 and look at this danger here, some of you might realize that these uh, verses are perhaps among the most debated and controversial verses uh, in the New Testament. And I want to look at those details, but first I want to just note that I think the main point of these verses is actually quite clear. The main point of these verses is this. Brothers and sisters, if we fall away from Christ with a hardness of heart, 
that leads us to join those that mock Christ and crucify him, rather than those who yield to Christ, there's only one outcome, and that is judgment. Spiritual sluggishness puts this result of hardness of heart and judgment on the table as a real possibility. It's not inevitable yet, but it is a possible outcome of where you're headed that must be warned of. And for those in the church, not only is judgment the result of falling away for Christ, but if we who have heard the truth of God, have seen God's Spirit at work, if we fall away and reject Christ, how much greater the judgment, how much greater the punishment for those who have seen the power of God and then rejected Christ. That's the main point of these verses. But let me comment on two questions that commentators wrestle with in the details here. Let's look at the details. The first question is this. Who exactly are these verses talking about when they talk about someone who has been enlightened and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the powers of the age to come and then fallen away? Are these verses talking to genuine Christians? Or are these verses talking to those who are in the church? Maybe they've even professed Christ, but are not real believers, not genuine believers. There's basically three ways that this um, passage has been interpreted. There's actually quite a few, but there's three main interpretations. The first interpretation would be that these verses are talking about genuine Christians who have placed their faith in Christ, received the Holy Spirit, but then fall away, losing their salvation. However, I think we would, we would reject this view. Uh, I don't think this can possibly be correct, since we could summon at least 20 passages from the New Testament showing that God keeps hold of those who are united to Christ, and they don't lose their salvation once they have been joined to him by faith. So we can set that aside. The two main interpretations, then, that we're left with are these. One side would hold that these verses are addressing genuine Christians, and they warn against abandoning salvation. But God uses these warnings as the means by which no Christian will lose their salvation. In other words, they're genuine believers. The author warns against losing their salvation. And this warning becomes the way God keeps his believers safe from abandoning Christ. There are a number of good uh, arguments for this interpretation. But I think its greatest weakness is that this interpretation means that the author is strongly and passionately warning Christians against something that is actually theologically impossible. And Christians can't lose their salvation, but I'm going to warn you really strongly not to lose your salvation. Um, And I just don't know if that fits the tone of the passage, but um, there there are other good arguments as well. The other interpretation, the other main side, probably the majority of of commentators, would say that these verses describe someone who is part of the church but has not legitimately placed their faith in Christ. They've been around the church. They've professed faith. They've taken communion. They've seen God's power at work. And yet they've never genuinely repented and placed their faith on Christ. I probably lean towards this interpretation myself after uh, studying it for two reasons. One, I think that this same language is used of Old Testament uh, Israelites. When it talks about how they uh, tasted the manna, they passed through the sea, they had the covenants, they were part of all of these things that God had given, and yet they rejected God in a hardness of heart. 
But I also think the language fits the New Testament passages, such as the parable of the sower. You remember the parable where Jesus talks about scattering the seed, and he talks about some seed that will spring up at first with joy, but then will wilt and wither and fall away. Or maybe you think of a passage like 1 John chapter 2, which describes those who are in the church and then abandon Christ and leave the church. And it says that when this happens, it shows that they were never one of us. Because if they had been one of us, they would have remained with us. And so I think this, this, this picture fits well with both the Old and the New Testament. And this is addressed to people in the church who have maybe professed their faith and taken communion, but have not actually and genuinely put their faith in Christ. But those are, those are the positions uh, there on the first question and, and where I lean. The second question uh, is this, and maybe this has even more questions in your mind. What does it mean when it says that if someone falls away from Christ after hearing the truths of, of God, that it is impossible, in this case, to restore them again to repentance? That is a pretty significant statement. For those who have heard the truths of God and then fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. What does this mean? There are, are some who try to soften uh, this statement a bit and interpret it to say, while you are rejecting Christ, it is impossible to repent. But that's kind of obvious. Um, and I think it ignores the real point of this passage. I think this teaching is quite clear. That there comes a point... When someone hardens their heart, that they side with the crucifiers who scorn the salvation Christ offered. And in their hardness of heart, there comes a point when God hands them over to their hardness of heart, rather than bringing them to repentance and salvation. In fact, Scripture actually says this over and over, and we don't have time to look at every place, but consider a couple. Second Peter chapter 2 argues that it would be far better to never hear the gospel than to hear it, confess it, and then abandon it, which is like a dog returning to its vomit. Proverbs chapter 1 issues a strong warning that because wisdom called but you refused to listen, I will laugh at your calamity and you will eat the fruit of your way and have your fill of your own devices. Or maybe we think of Jesus' statement about the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's a whole passage in and of itself, but I think the key point is this. When one sees the power of God's Spirit at work in front of them, and instead of receiving it, scorns it, mocks it, and rejects it, calling it demonic and a hardness of heart, God does not work to forgive, but leaves them in their hardness of heart. This is an important warning. But it is a sobering warning. How can we not grieve at heart when we think of this warning? Now, a word needs to be added here, because I know that there are probably many here, maybe whose kids have grown up in the church, have heard the gospel, maybe even joined the church, and now have rejected Christianity. Is this passage saying there's no hope? I think the answer is, is no. It's not saying that in every case, because we need to remember this passage is not written so that we can make a judgment about the state of everyone else's hearts. This isn't giving us a key to say you can know for sure what's possible and impossible in every situation. Maybe think of it this way. It is not usually possible for you and I at any given moment 
to know if we are looking at a Judas who has rejected Christ in hardness of heart and will be judged, or at a Peter who rejected Christ in a moment of temptation from the world, and yet not in hardness of heart, but Jesus restored him to repentance. Or maybe think, are we looking at a King Saul who disobeyed God out of a hardness of heart and fell away and was rejected? Or are we looking at a King David who sinned against God deeply for a period of time and yet not in hardness of heart and God renewed them to repentance? We don't always know. And so it's not for us to give up hope on any individual. Rather, the point of this passage is to warn each one of us individually If we are spiritually sluggish and dull and show no interest in the gospel, you need to know where this might lead. This might lead to a hardness of heart, to a hardness of heart to the point where God may hand you over and say, if you have rejected me with scorn and hardness of heart, I hand you over to your own devices. That is the worst possible situation we could ever find ourselves in. And so we need to hear the warning. I don't know why each one of you is here this morning. I don't know your heart. I don't know the heart of each of you who are students, who are maybe here with your families. But listen to this. The central danger, according to this passage, is that those who need this warning most are those who are dull of hearing and spiritually sluggish. And therefore, those who need this warning the most are the least likely to take it seriously. And so I appeal you to examine our hearts, to hear the warning of God's Word. And I still remember the year, eight, no, ten years ago now, when I first started teaching at Veritas Academy here in Leola, I was living in Valley Forge. And so I would commute at about 5.30 in the morning, uh, the hour drive from Valley Forge to Lancaster. And especially in the winter, I was very tired. And I remember driving along the road at one point and realize, realizing as I hit rumble strips that I had started to drift off to sleep. And the rumble strips woke me up and I jerked back onto the road. And for the rest of the drive, I was pinching myself, sort of stamping my foot, singing, probably looking insane, doing anything I could to stay awake. And this passage is supposed to be a rumble strip for those who are dull of hearing and spiritually sluggish. A rumble strip saying when you hit this rumble strip, there's one of two options. We keep going in a path that may lead to hardness of heart, falling away from Christ and death, or to veer back, to wake up to spiritual vigor, to pursue Christ and faith. These are our options. We have such a great Savior. And so we hear God's word appeal. Don't stand at a safe distance. Come to him. Come to him. But in our last few minutes, please note that our passage doesn't end here. The author of Hebrews is concerned for his people, but he's not here to stir up fear unnecessarily in those who are clinging to Christ, but are are grieved at their ongoing sins and weaknesses. There are some with true sensitive hearts who know and hate their sin, who may hear this and may have their hope shaken. And that is not what the author of Hebrews wants. And so he ends in verses 9 through 12 with this note. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Why does he have hope? Well, he gives us two reasons. 
First and most importantly, because God is not unjust. God is not a suspicious God looking for any trip up as a reason to cast judgment. No, he is a just God. And particularly, he is just to keep his promises of salvation to all who live by faith in him. Not to those who are perfect, but to those who continue in faith in him. But second, the author notes that he still sees the fruit of faith in the life of this church. He sees the fruit of obedience, of love for God's people that shows a love for God's name. And so the author offers this comfort. God is not unjust. I see the fruit of your faith. And for you, my point in writing is that you might not be sluggish, but will continue with patient perseverance and faith in Christ. Those who do this can have strong hope, a full assurance of their hope to the end. And so as he brings this passage to a close, he has one last application for us in our hearts. In verses 11 and 12, notice how he calls us to live as followers of Christ. And this is so practical. It's so practical on a daily basis. Notice how he piles up words that are the opposite of laziness. Earnestness. Until the end. Faith. Patience. It seems like we're constantly encouraged against perseverance and patience in our culture. We're constantly encouraged to look to the next new thing, to try something different. There's not a whole lot of pizzazz in steady, patient faithfulness. But that's just what a mature heart has gained by putting off sluggishness and practicing discernment and holding fast to Christ. And the author reminds us that we have plenty of examples to imitate. He'll tell us more about those in chapter 11. But it's enough for us to remember a few names. Maybe we think of Abraham, who waited with patient faith for the seemingly impossible birth of Isaac. Maybe we think of Jeremiah, who endured ridicule and being thrown in a pit. And more and more and more faithfully proclaimed God's word despite that. Maybe we remember faithful Israel, who waited for centuries for the promised Messiah, but continued in faith, waiting for the promise. All of them make the same point. Earnest faith with patience, even when it doesn't look worth it, even when it doesn't seem to be working, always yielded the promised inheritance. And so in light of these examples, the call is this. Will we continue with earnest and patient faith to pursue Christ who offers this full assurance of hope? This passage brings us right back to Jesus, right back to what a wonderful Savior He is, He is better than anything else. And it's in fixing our eyes on Him, this wonderful Savior, that we have the desire and strength to continue in earnest faith and patience until the end. Just like those who have gone before us, this will lead us to inherit eternal promises. Let's pray. Father, as we read Your Word, this passage is perhaps the pinnacle of the warnings of Hebrews. And so I pray that as we read a sobering passage, that our hearts would be sobered. That we would examine our hearts. If we have been dull of hearing or sluggish in our faith, I pray that we would hear this warning and see where it might lead and respond with earnestness to pursue Christ. And I pray that if this passage causes our hearts to be shaken, that we would hear the hope at the end that God is not unjust that all who pursue him by faith
with patient earnestness, will inherit the promises because God is faithful. And may this give us a full assurance and call our hearts to such a great Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.